with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 228 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and last week I flipped a tyre and hurled myself over a wall. Urgh. I thought you were going to say I flipped a tyre and hurled. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. That could have been my fact. But no, did not vomit. Flipped a tyre 12 times. Jumped over a wall five times. Were you trying to confuse a sniffer dog? <laughs> I was on the rob. <laughs> I was running mm. away from the pig cops. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I have bought Christmas presents. So I don't know who I am anymore. What have I got? Tell me what I'm having. I have actually got something for you, yeah. This is exciting. I'm not going to tell you though. Is it going to be revealed on a podcast like last year? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I am baffled by my daughter's posing. Absolutely baffled. So Vogue? A friend of mine who's a photographer, she does like a thing, it's like a Christmas grotto thing, so you can go and get like some festive photos taken and you can like, you know, I don't know, make cards out of them or whatever people do to send to relatives at Christmas. And she was like, Oh, do you want do you and Lyra want to pop down like you know, just as I'm finishing kind of thing and I'll get a couple of pictures for you? I was like, Yeah, that'd be nice because when you're a single parent 98% of the photos you have with your child are selfies. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it would be nice for some of them not to be. So we went down there and she was like, all right, Lyra, you sit on the chair first of all and do whatever. And there's a little wooden stool there. She just sat down and she was like... <laughs> Jen is posing up a storm. And I was just like, what the f- what the fuck is she doing? I've never seen... I've ne- How does she know? Where did she get that from? I don't understand. She'd been watching Zoolander. <laughs> she knew exactly what to do. I was completely baffled by it. I was just like, I, I don't know where that's come from. Get them early. They do. Coming up, I chat to Dorno Porter about grief, stereotypes and her new book, Cat Lady. I'm taking over Jenny off the blocks for the week, chatting to Tig Hodson, co-founder of the excellent all-women fitness space Stronger, a.k.a. the place where I flip tyres and hurl myself over walls. She means hurl herself. <laughs> Just hurl myself. <laughs> <laughs> and in Rated or Dated, Hannah and Jen fight over who gets to be my official egg peeler as we watch 1967's Cool Hand Luke. But first, security breaches, submarines and shampoo. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush! Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Let's see how Rashid Sanook is doing, eh? <laughs> oh dear. Oh Joe. Poor Doddery Joe. <laughs> yeah. Although, can't verify this because I'm I'm not Indian, but someone had posted on Twitter that in fact Rashid's surname shouldn't actually be pronounced Sunak, it should be pronounced Sanook. Well let's not talk about them. Let's talk instead about Suella Braverman. Home Secretary, and inspiration to anyone who thought an absence of any discernible talent or charisma might prevent them from getting on in the world. Mm. So, for anyone who's not been paying close attention, and who could blame them, (laughs) Braverman has had a busy few months. After standing in the race for a new leader of the Tory party, she was made Home Secretary by then Prime Minister Liz Truss, only to resign on October the 19th, citing a, quote, technical infringement (laughs) in what initially looked like an attempt to destabilise Truss's government. Turned out, it was about her emails. (laughs) How terribly 2016. But the ensuing crisis that saw Truss forced to also resign and a scramble to find another PM meant that issue got shunted aside for a bit. But given that this week's PM, 
Rishi Sunak gave the Home Office back to Braverman just six days after she'd resigned. Questions were soon asked about the wisdom of that decision, given that the, and I say it again, technical infringement (laughs) was emailing an official document to her own personal account and then forwarding it to a number of people, something that's strictly against the rules, before you even consider that one of those people wasn't even who she intended to send it to in the first place. Wasn't it someone's wife? Like someone who wasn't even, like, not even not a minister, not even not a backbencher, just someone's wife, like... She does work in his office, apparently. Okay, but right. yeah, that, that's a whole other question. I thought we weren't getting people's families working for them anymore. That was 400 crises ago, so uh, <laughs> we've moved on since then. Sunak initially defended his decision to reinstate Braverman as Home Secretary, saying, quote, she made an error of judgment, but recognised that. She raised the matter and she accepted her mistake. However... The BBC is reported to have spoken to several people who contradict this version of events, saying Braverman did not, quote, raise the matter. Instead, emailing the person she sent the documents to in error, asking them to ignore and delete the email. Which, note to PR companies, (laughs) is the thing most likely to make me actually read an email. (laughs) It just stops everything else I'm doing. At the weekend, levelling up secretary and sentient sweat gland Michael Gove <laughs> told the BBC he was glad the Prime Minister had given Braverman a second chance, describing her as a first-rate politician <sighs> with a straight face. I don't think he knows what first-rate means. He added that the fact that the Home Secretary asked the recipient to delete and ignore the message was standard practice. I mean, maybe when you accidentally press reply all, when you meant to send the private joke, I am a big-titted whore, to just one person you work with, (laughs) rather than every single person you work with. Who's done that, Jim? Where have I got that from? (laughs) Just made it up. Just made it up. It was you, wasn't it, Hannah? Yeah, I was not about it. But that's for those instances, not when you accidentally send documents you're not even supposed to be sending in the first place. Labour is demanding that Sunak come clean and release assessments of Suella Braverman's security breach with Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper, saying her party will try to force the government to come clean. I mean, best (laughs) of luck with that. Honesty is not big with these guys. Let's remember that last month, the big issue debunked Braverman's claim to have contributed to a 2007 textbook Gambling for Local Authorities, Licensing, Planning and Regeneration. Have you read it, Jen? No. Oh, it's an excellent read. The book's author, Philip Colvin KC, told The Big Issue that Braverman, quote, did not make a written or editorial contribution to the book, adding, on one occasion, I asked her to do some photocopying, which she did. (laughs) (laughs) Did she photocopy something top secret and then send it to someone's wife? (laughs) Yeah, probably. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm not a fan of hers, as anyone who's listened to the podcast recently will know. But the thing is, so she said today, on Monday, as we record this, she said, I didn't do anything wrong, but I did make the same security breach six other times. (laughs) Six other times. And this is apparently just in the period that's being reviewed, not the period of her entire time as home secretary which is only about two months as well so like, like six fucking times in less than two months like she really doesn't know how this shit works does she so i saw last week she's going to be given apparently she's going to be given lessons from mi5 
on how to like deal with secret documents properly. As I said on Twitter last week, I used to be a civil servant. It's just not that hard. It's really not yeah. hard. It's very straightforward. If she needs to have a lesson from MI5 in like how to do a really fundamental part of any government job, I would suggest that she's thick as pig shit as well as being shit at her job. Do you think it's like, if you've ever worked in a kitchen or in a bar, sometimes they make you do these you know, health and and customer service type modules. Questions are always on these things. The questions are always, a customer comes to the bar and asks for something you don't have. Do you, A, tell him, I'm really sorry I don't have that. B, serve him something else. C, punch him in the face. (laughs) They're always like really, like, I think it's A, isn't it? I think. Now, as I recall, I think I got 100% in that, in that online module, Hannah. But I think the questions were like, you have a top secret document. Should you A, keep it in the office, never take it out of the office and not tell anyone about it who's not supposed to know about it? B, like, open your laptop on a train where which is crowded and anyone could be looking over your shoulder? Or C, like, sell it to the sun? So like, it, it, <laughs> it wasn't that difficult. Right. I'll make no veins about it, Hannah. This is a horrible story and um, relating to the cost of living crisis again. Just when you thought we had enough to contend with mortgages, fuel costs, energy bills, I could go on. Another issue has been highlighted by the Hygiene Bank. A report published by the anti-poverty charity last week found hygiene poverty, which is basically not being able to afford everyday hygiene and personal grooming products, is affecting an estimated 6% of adults Mm. in the UK. That's a lot, isn't it? Mm. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it hits some demographics harder than others. For example, it affects 11% of 18 to 34-year-olds and 11% of people from ethnic minorities, as well as 21% of disabled people. It also affects, in case you're thinking, oh, this sounds like, you know, just poor people or whatever, uh, or I don't know, Mm. some people may have like a very specific idea about the kind the kind of people in inverted commas that that are suffering as a result of this it does affect five percent of adults who are working according to the charity of course the impacts are massive and are physical as well as mental understandably with 61 percent of those experiencing hygiene poverty saying it had had a negative impact on their mental health but it's also a barrier to things that could help escape the cycle of poverty, like going to school or work or attending job interviews. And in fact, 12% of those surveyed said they avoided facing colleagues as a result. And when you look at the increasing cost of living and the fact that items like shampoo have increased by 8% in the last year, it's pretty easy to see how this is happening and how it is unlikely to improve, at least in the short to medium term. Now, if these statistics have shocked you as they have me, you can make a donation to the Hygiene Bank online or volunteer to help in other ways by visiting their website, thehygienebank.com. Meanwhile, the BBC reported this week that just half of customers with prepayment meters are redeeming vouchers issued under the government's energy bill support scheme. All households will receive six either 66 pounds or 67 pound monthly deductions on their bills but for those with prepayment meters this comes in the form of a voucher which has to be redeemed 
As yet, only £27 million of an estimated £52.8 million has been claimed. So if you have a prepayment meter or you know someone who does, they should have received these vouchers by now. They're only valid for 90 days, so please check your post, check your emails, check your texts in case you've missed them. And if you can't find them, contact your supplier. I don't know why they would possibly say they're only valid for 90 days. No, I don't either, but that's that's what they've done. And, you know, the thing is, obviously, as we all know, people who have prepayment meters pay disproportionately more for their energy because mm. they don't get the discount from paying via direct debit, which makes tariffs cheaper. And often they are people who have been forced onto a prepayment meter because they have a history of... Yeah maybe not paying their bills because they've got affordability problems. So these are actually the people who really need it. Also, there's another whole thing about like vulnerable people getting access to the stuff that they need. You've actually made it harder for them to access it because me and you, we just get ours automatically taken off our bill. That's easy. We don't have to do anything. And then you're, you've got a group of people who we know are least likely to claim the support available to them, and they actually have to go through an extra fucking hoop to get it. It's just, it's it's baffling. If you know someone who has a prepayment meter, please make sure that they are claiming this. Jen, what would your reaction be if I asked to halt recording in order for us to go make ourselves a nice cup of tea? I'd say that's quite standard, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you for why. Drinking black tea may reduce the risk of dying young from heart disease, according to a new observational study that used data on nearly half a million people aged 40 to 69. Wait, what? One of my addictions is actually good for me. There has never been such times. A research team in the US led by Dr. Maki Inio-Choi of the National Institute of Health's National Cancer Institute. That's a rather repetitive (laughs) name. But anyway, he investigated the association between drinking tea and mortality in the UK, because where else (laughs) would you study it? And found that people who drank two or more cups per day were found to have a 9 to 13% lower risk of an early death from cardiovascular disease or stroke, compared with non-tea drinkers. Researchers caution, however, that the study is observational and cannot prove that tea drinking lowered the risk of death directly, and a further study will be needed to determine if and how tea reduces the risk of death. I am available to drink all of the tea (laughs) to prove it. We've figured out the COVID conundrum, haven't we? Hannah's the only one in this group who's not had COVID yet. Yeah. Maybe it's all the tea. Maybe it is all the tea. I th- <laughs> Send your anecdotal evidence to us, please. Yeah, send us a picture of you <laughs> alive enjoying a cup of tea. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we say, oh, you've only been admitting women since 2011. Well, this is a surprise. <laughs> This week's offering comes from the Royal Navy's Submarine Service, where an investigation has been launched into absolutely horrific allegations of sexual abuse made against male staff members. The first sea lord, what a title, (laughs) Admiral Sir Ben Key, said he was, and I quote, deeply disturbed by the reports, which included allegations that women serving on Britain's nuclear submarines had been ranked on a, and this is also a direct quote, a rape list. Lovely stuff. 
30-year-old Sophie Brooke, who joined the service in 2014, three years after women were first admitted, told the Daily Mail she was forcibly kissed by a senior officer and another inserted his genitals into her pocket. Honestly, we beg for pockets. We <laughs> Look what they do with them. Someone comes and sticks their dick in them. She was verbally and physically abused and told she was sixth in line to be raped in the event of some kind of catastrophic event at sea. She claimed that the abuse was so extreme, female members of staff had attempted to break their own limbs to avoid patrol. I mean, fucking hell. Say what you like about the behaviour, and a will, about how horrific and terrifying it must have been to work under these conditions, how completely unacceptable it is, and how fucking obvious the line between only beginning to admit women in 2011 and a completely toxic culture in which women are demeaned and objectified. But, also, we're talking about people who are charged with responsibility for actual nuclear warheads, that they are apparently not above slipping their dick in someone's pocket and licking their ears for lols, which is, frankly, very worrying indeed, I would say. The Times can fuck off as well for referring to Brooke's dismissal from the Navy last June after she was court-martialed for sharing classified information, or Suella, regarding the position of her submarine with her, quote, married lover, a lieutenant commander. His marital status isn't really relevant to this story, is it? Whose pocket he has his dick in <laughs> might be. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, who would have thought it, Jen? You take this box, fill it with men, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. I'm joined by writer, podcaster and designer, Dawn Porter, who's here to talk about her new book, Cat Lady. Hello, Dawn. Hi. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me today. The expression cat lady kind of conjures some pretty specific ideas or stereotypes. I wondered if you could tell me, first of all, a little bit about the book. So it's a, a book that kind of looks at stereotypes and challenges them and then I suppose sort of embraces them. But um, I just think it's interesting how there's no such thing as a crazy cat man. But for some reason, a woman who has a cat is, gets this bizarre negativity attached to that love for her cat. So I just wanted to put it into a book because I am a cat lady. Me too. And I, when I Googled it, the definition is, you know, um, a spinster, usually of an older age, who lives alone with a cat or cats. And I was like, well, why, do, why does she have to be crazy as well? Why does that make her crazy? And I think it's because society just can't cope with a woman who doesn't have a man, even still. It's a very difficult thing. So we've almost created like this caricature of the crazy cat lady. The book is about a woman called Mia, mm-hmm. who has escaped a life of chaos from a very troubled and traumatic childhood. And so she's got everything in order. She's got a great job. She's got her house. She's got a husband and a stepson. And all of these things keep her on track for her sanity. And bit by bit, over the course of the book, they slip away and she is returned back to that state of chaos that she's been so desperately trying to avoid. And she finds support in the most 
strange place, which is a pet bereavement group, but this kind of odd cast of characters become the backbone to her finding herself in a much better place. So she ends up still very much herself, but living more of a life that she um, she should be living. So the central character, Mia, loses her mum as a child, and, and you've spoken a lot about your experience of losing your mum to breast cancer when, when you were a child. And this experience sort of forms the basis for her character in a lot of ways. So to what extent is the book based on your own experiences? And also, did you always kind of intend to write a book that is, you know, essentially about grief? The book isn't really my experience. Her history is similar to mine in that her mum died when she was a kid and she's got one sister. But that's where my similarities with her end. Mia's childhood was really difficult. She had very unloving and quite aggressive dad which yeah. isn't at all what I had but you know always with a book less so the more that I write but there will also always be pieces of me kind of scattered into it that I think it's impossible not to do when you're writing real life stories I just you know had that little nugget of I know what it feels like to be one of two sisters when your mum dies young so I, I made that a little there's these flashbacks to Mia as a child with her mum and how loving and tender that relationship with and I guess there was, she's quite spiky and cold now as a result of losing that nurturing relationship so young. I wouldn't describe myself as spiky and cold. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure some people might, but I wouldn't. I'm not the same person that Mia is. But I think when, when you experience uh, trauma at a young age, it can affect you in different ways. It turns me into a kind of attention seeker, you know, who want everyone to like me type person. And Mia's gone the other way. She doesn't really care if people like her or not. And for that reason, she's very content with just her cat. And, and as far as grief goes, yeah, I lost my cat in 2020. And it was really, it was just such a sad time. So I did want to write about that because from my experience of grief throughout my life, my cat, it might sound ridiculous to some people, but I was as sad as I have been when people have died. I was absolutely devastated. And I, I do think you, you do get over it quicker in the long term when you lose a pet and then you can get a, you can replace the pet with a, another pet and bring joy into your life, mm. which you can't do with a, with a person. But when it initially happened, for the weeks that come after losing a pet, it's absolutely devastating. And I just really wanted to honour that in the book because I think a lot of people feel that they're not allowed to be as sad as they are when a pet dies. We had two cats that were 20 and 19 and they were mother and daughter and they both died this year, about oh, six no. months apart. So I feel your pain. It's it's yeah. really, it's horrible, isn't it? Why do you think people do dismiss it? I mean, I don't think people necessarily who have pets pets mm. dismiss it but I, I also just think people that you know life is hard and awful things happen and I think even the person who's lost the pet doesn't feel like that I think you just presume that people won't care and therefore you don't ask for help a friend of mine came when our dog died a friend of mine came over and sat with me for two hours while I just kind of sobbed about this dog after about two hours I just said oh my god I'm so sorry I mean I've just sat here she said, it doesn't matter what you're crying about you're absolutely devastated you could be crying about the fact that you stub your toe if someone that you love is really sad you need to be there for them but she very kind of sweetly <laughs> and I'm not really sure people would do that but it really taught me how you know next time a friend of mine loses a pet I want to be that friend to them and just mm. go and let them talk about it and and cry because you just want to sob it's so sad you mentioned just then that Mia is a bit of a spiky character and you know she is I wondered to what extent do you think that she's a sympathetic character as well because obviously she has had these experiences that have made her that way but if you knew Mia you would probably find her a bit hard to relate to sometimes maybe 
Did you like her as a character? Yeah, I really did. But I quite like complicated women in real life and on the page. So I liked her very much. But also I think there's two key relationships in her life. One is with her cat and one is with her stepson. And that's where you see her softer side and how much love she's got to give. And it's almost like those are the two most kind of uncomplicated, unchallenging relationships that she has when, you know, grown adults just seem to make her life harder. She's kind of doing fine until a human being comes into the equation and just makes everything difficult. But I really liked her. And I feel like over the course of the book, I think even if someone's reading it and they don't like her, I still think you'll be rooting for her and you're hoping that she gets what she wants because... She's not particularly likable. The characters around her aren't particularly likable. But there is love that comes through in these other small relationships. And the pet bereavement group that she attends is kind of crucial to see. That's where you can see her longing for something. And you can see what she feels that she's missing. And all she has to do is just open up to the idea of letting people in. And when she does, her life gets better. Because you mentioned complicated women there. And it's kind of like, well... You know, people are complicated, aren't they? So, Mm -hmm. of course, women are complicated in real life. And historically, there haven't been, in my opinion, enough representations of that on the page or, you know, in films and TV, sort of more three-dimensional characters for women. Do you think that's changing? I do. I think there's some really amazing female characters around now. Also, like, my reference point is always Jane Eyre, which has always been there. It's one of the most well-drawn, three-dimensional, complicated female characters ever written still stands up if you read that book today it's like she's still like such an interesting character to read and I think those characters have always been there but maybe not been celebrated because what sells and what is more about escapism I suppose that people wanted and just the kind of how popular rom-coms became where women became quite vacuous on page and on screen for a while there and we all kind of thought that's how women were being represented but I mean there's plenty of good kind of complicated female characters out there and I feel like now in most of the TV shows that we're getting, people have realised that we don't really want to just see a woman who exists for her love life anymore and is in this kind of desperate quest to find a boyfriend. And I feel like the roles that are getting written for women, especially on screen, I mean, it's all getting more meaty, isn't it? Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I was just sort of thinking, as you were answering that question, I was thinking about The Wire and the character of McNulty, who is... He's an awful guy, like, in in so many ways. But you do kind of root for him. And I was just wondering, like, if he had been a woman, if people would root for him. I know, it's a a strange thing. Also, people just seem to be, in my books, I write some really nice... There's a lovely guy in um, Cat Lady called Lee. There's other guys that we get to love throughout the book. In all of my books, there's been at least one guy who is just lovely and brilliant. And there's been other guys who aren't. None of my characters in any of my books are particularly nice. They all do terrible things, the women. But I always get asked, why do you make men look so bad in your books? I'm like, why are you thinking about that? These women are awful. Why are you so upset about the fact that that I've written men who aren't absolutely delightful and charming, like Hugh Grant, as if that's the kind of character that should be in all my books? Whenever men interview me, they always ask that. What is it? Why why do you write such kind of unlikable men? I'm like, you're just not even noticing the women at all you're just so upset with me that I've not kind of glorified men in the story it's a really odd thing I notice it all the time but yeah that's just my answer to that question when they when they say why do, why don't you like men basically I'm like well you could say that you know these women are terrible <laughs> the books that you write 
the the fiction books that you write are all sort of about the female experience, I guess, in in mm-hmm. different ways. I wondered because you're based in LA now, or predominantly based in LA. Obviously, LA has a certain kind of reputation. Has that changed your perceptions at all of the female experience? No, not really. And I'm sorry to say that my life in LA is what people see in the media here isn't the LA that I live in at all. You know, it's not the very kind of school mum life out there. I'm not under any pressure to be skinny, no more than I am here. I really don't feel all of those kind of cliches of LA life at all. And, you know, a lot of my friends are from London or Ireland who live out there now. So no, not really. And I also think the female experience is pretty across the board. We all put the same pressures on ourselves for the way that we look. But I've come back here and my, my friends here are just no different from my friends out there at all. So no, not really. But I always set my books in London because they feel kind of more rooted in the kind of people that I know and it feels more natural to do that. But no, LA, it's a really odd thing when you, I've lived there for 15 years and when I come back, people will always kind of be like, come on, tell us the gossip or what's it really like? And I'm like, well, it's, I don't really know how to say that it's different. My my life is loads more glamorous when I'm in London. I go out (laughs) more and go to lots more things and much more industry and that kind of excitement when I'm here. In LA, it's just, you know, lots of people, people just wear kind of yoga pants and walk around drinking coffee and green smoothies. But apart from that, it's, it's not that different. It's interesting that we still have these kind of perceptions of LA as this, like, you know, very, very glamorous place. And uh, do you know that it totally exists, but it's just not the world that I'm, that I'm involved with. I don't live in Beverly Hills. And if I did, I'd probably be giving you a very different answer. We live in Hollywood, which sounds very glamorous, but it isn't. <laughs> so Hollywood's not actually a very pretty place at all. This is your third adult fiction book, and it's your eighth book in total. You've written children's books as well. You've written non-fiction. You also started your career in TV. And I should mention as well, you've got a podcast that's about to start in November called Get It On as well. What's been like your favourite thing to work on? I mean, there's always the books. So that's always the best bit. It's the, they're the hardest and the most torturous to actually produce, but absolutely the like, highlight of everything I do is when it's finished and it's in my hands and I'm telling people about it. I just love that. And, and other stuff that I've worked on, I love doing the podcast. I think it's really fun. The work that I do, which isn't really my job, but that I find the most rewarding is what I do with Choose Love Charity, where I'm like, you know, a fundraiser for them. So mm-hmm. when we've got a campaign going on and you see the kindness in people and how much like celebrities support us and get the message of what we're doing out there. We raise money for refugees. That's like the most rewarding thing that I do. And then in terms of my actual job, it's the writing. And to be honest with you, you know, if I could, it would be great if all I did was write books, but it just doesn't ever work out that way because something I'm very grateful for is that I have a profile that gets me interviewed by you and gets me in a position to be able to get my work out there and that's something that I think you have to maintain so to maintain that you've got to do other things Mm. and so I do all that but it's all geared towards supporting my writing career really. You do a lot of work for Choose Love we spoke to someone from Choose Love for the podcast I think it was last year I don't know how up to date you are I don't know how up to date any of us are with the current political situation. No I'm not very up to date at all it's impossible. (laughs) I guess it's quite a worrying time from the perspective of, of charities like that who are sort of working to help asylum seekers and refugees. Yeah I mean the issue is that it's just there isn't an end in sight it's an ongoing increasingly increasing problem and you know we can raise as much money as we can and then we just need more and more and more there's no end goal it's just not going anywhere 
and then you know war happens in ukraine and then suddenly there's ukrainians that need help and it's just that's just going to keep happening and so the message that i try to get um, out there to people is i think when people think oh that's not my problem it's really important that people understand that it's all of our problem it's going you know it's something that we have to get together as a unite and understand that if we all just did a little bit whether that's just awareness not everyone can give money and that's totally fair i don't expect everyone to give money but just spreading that word of awareness that this is a problem that we all need to take some it's not not responsibility it's not responsible for it but Mm. just try and help in some way because yeah when you look at the numbers which i'm sorry i don't have with me now but the number of people who uh displaced is just increasing daily and it's women with children it's pregnant women in camps with no you know hygiene um, packs or anything like that that's what we do we literally raise money to buy the essentials so we're giving babies nappies and we're giving you know mothers sterilizing equipment so they can you know keep their babies healthy and it's blankets and shoes like men who walk for hundreds of miles and don't have any shoes on and we get them some shoes like it's really it's just the basics that every human deserves just everything that we do I'm so proud of and it was just a group of friends who started it you know just a real grassroots organization that turned into Choose Love which is now you know we've raised over 30 million for displaced people around the world but um that would just be an ongoing mission forever I think I mean, they're they're a fantastic charity, and uh, yeah, like I said, we interviewed them for the podcast. I think it was last Christmas, and you know, I can put a link to them in the show notes, and you can donate if you would like Thank to. You. So, Dawn, you've got a new podcast coming out. What else have you got going on? What's next for you? I'm going to go back to LA, and I had to start writing the pilot script for Paper Airplanes, which was my first novel, which has been optioned for TV. That doesn't mean it's going to be on TV. That means that a production company has said, let's try and get this on TV. So I had to go back and write that. And after that, another book. So I'll spend most of next year writing another novel. Your book, Cat Lady, is out on the 27th of October. Where can we follow you on the socials so we can keep up to date with what you're doing or any events that you might have around the book? So I'm at Hot Patooties on Instagram. I left Twitter, which is a liberation and I couldn't (laughs) recommend it more. I also have a blog on Patreon, which you can subscribe to. I know it's $4 a month. I'm not sure what that is in pounds, but I write constantly on that like three posts a week we do competitions and zoom book clubs and all sorts of really fun things that's my real social network there and i love it so i put a lot into that but i'm also very heavily involved with instagram okay great dawn thank you so much for joining me and all the best with the book thank you so much take care you play ball like a girl Go on, do one, kid. Mickey off the blocks. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Tig Hodson, co-founder of Stronger, a women-only gym in Bethnal Green and one of my favourite spaces. Tig, hello. Hello. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you, listeners. This is probably the first time I've been genuinely excited to see Tig because when she shows (laughs) up as my coach... And I always know that my body's in for a really, a, quite a rough ride. ride. <laughs> a good ride, a good ride. You kind of slink back out again and they're like, get here. <laughs> yeah, I certainly slink out at the end because I can't walk <laughs> properly. So I just described Strong Hair as a gym, but in all honesty, that doesn't really cover it. It's not adequate. Could you tell us a bit more about Strong Hair and what made you want to make it exist? Yes, yeah, so Strong Hair is a fitness space with a difference. 
it's a space where every woman fits in. And yes, we use strength training as a tool and a mechanism to enhance women's confidence with weight training. But the idea is that it's also there to provide the tools and the confidence in other aspects of their life. So it's, it is more than strength training, but obviously that's what we use as our as our way to guide women into maybe leaving their jobs or leaving relationships or deciding to go on a worldwide adventure. Mm-hmm. And just for them to take back control of that space, ones that we've not necessarily felt comfortable in for, well, our whole existence, I mm-hmm. suppose. Like women have been made to feel like they're not allowed or they're unwanted or intimidated in the weight training space. So it's like, okay, if we can get more women feeling confident in that space, then we can get them feeling more confident in many other spaces. It started, how did it start? I can't even remember now. (laughs) It honestly started, myself and Sam, we were both dancers before, and this was, we didn't actually know each other at this point. We were both dancers, and we had never done weight training or anything like that. And I, specifically for myself, I was very athletic as a child, but when it came to the gym, I was terrified of the weights. Mm -hmm. It was only through kind of like an an environment. I was working in a gym on reception. People were saying you should be a PT. Sam was... I don't know what she was doing, but we ended up both becoming PTs. And then from us doing the course ourselves and realizing that the information they were giving was absolutely crap. It was so bad. Yeah. All these PTs are being like turned out and you don't actually learn anything on the course. So we were like, okay, so you've got that. And then at the same time, when we were doing it, Instagram was like blowing up as like the, the main resource of like how to get your fitness advice. And I was just like, it's not real. It's not relatable. It's not honest. It's not actually teaching anyone anything. It's just teaching everybody how to reduce or look less and eat less and all that stuff. It's a culmination of things over the years, but effectively we were like, we want more women to have access to the right instruction. Mm-hmm. We want more women to feel comfortable in the space and not feel like they have to pay out of their ass in order to get a personal trainer or to get the right sort of education and the right sort of surroundings. And then from a personal perspective, I'd worked in so many boutique spaces and I was like, they're all white. Like nobody looks like me. And everywhere I worked, I was like, this is a, a recurring thing. And mm. and it was more like budget gyms. There would be more diversity, but there's it's a lack of instruction. Yeah. Whereas in, in the boutique ones, it was more about the atmosphere, a bit more instruction, but it's obviously on disposable cash. Just over the years, there's been this like all these different reasons and it comes back to basically just making an accessible space where women feel comfortable and confident and they can learn to grow and they don't feel judged in that space. It's clearly a space that when you and Sam, the very lovely Sam Prin, your best mate who you started Strongco with, when you put your heads together, it was a place you wanted to be, I guess, is what you created. Yeah, absolutely. Like over the years, we didn't realise until, because you don't, when you start a business, you're just like, oh, I've got a good idea. And you don't realise it's signature to you. It's part of who you are. It's part Mm -hmm. of like what you wanted. It's the problem that you wish someone had solved for you, but you're solving it for yourself. Exactly. The reason the tagline's fitness where every woman fits in is because both myself and Sam for different reasons didn't felt like we fit in in any space when we were growing up. If it was fitness, if it was social groups, whatever it was, like we felt like we were the odd ones out. So then we've made a whole space and a whole company for people that feel like the odd ones out. Well, (laughs) thanks. Actually not that odd. (laughs) I mean, some of us are pretty odd. It's fine though. (laughs) It's loving our oddness. And I think Strong Hair gives me the the belief to do that. (laughs) Yay! It does feel like it's a fairly recent phenomenon as well, that women are being encouraged to lift heavier weights than the tiny two kilogram dumbbells, usually fucking pink, I associate with (laughs) 1980s aerobics. But it is really really good for women to strength train with heavy weights 
Can you tell us a little bit about the benefits, please? Yeah, so this is like the boring side, I suppose. I mean, you have your biological side, which is it helps with bone density. And for women, it's more prevalent that you incur osteoporosis as you get older. But it's funny because the reason why that's more prevalent in women is because women never used to strength train. Ah, interesting. And also the research that's been out there is because one, it's only mainly done on men. And then when they've done it on women, they haven't done any strength training because so it's a whole like circle thing. So it's it'll be I'd be keen to see like in however many years, you know, if that's still the case. Oh, Tig, if they ever start using women in research, this could be really exciting. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Whoa. Then you've got your the other one which I'm very passionate about is hormone regulation as well. And especially this generation, there's more women from I say this generation or the generation before those that were in like their 40s now 40s 50s where <laughs> I like, waved I waved at Tig it's great on a podcast <laughs> a little wave little wave but those that have been in terms of like hormonal like contraceptive pills all that stuff that again has been given from the medical societies whatever being like women should take this that's has basically has an impact on women's hormonal systems now. So there's more women with endometriosis, PCOS, perimenopausal or coming into menopause earlier because they've been overactive in estrogen. Mm -hmm. And effectively, strength training is now helping combat that because it's kind of bringing in the other hormones to kind of counter it out a little bit. It's really, really good for that, which is not talked about enough. And that's something I talk about quite a lot of the impacts and how it can regulate that. That's new to me. That is entirely new to me. So what is the hormonal balance? How is that working? It's the impacts of serotonin and endorphins in play with progesterone and testosterone and estrogen. If you're training, then you release more growth hormones when you're sleeping. Therefore, then it has a different impact on cortisol and progesterone. So and because women's cycles are are cyclical at different parts in the month, that will play a different part. So it's not necessarily that it like regulates it in the sense of like if you strength train, it's going to change it. It's just that it produces other hormones that complement it. And that's why you see like people say with like anxiety and depression, that's equally because when you're at the back end of your cycle there's more progesterone in the body mm-hmm. whereas if you then do strength training or do some movement it doesn't necessarily be strength training but muscle growth is good for this it will then help that influx of progesterone and kind of minimize the effect slightly so it's a bit more scientific and a bit more but i don't want to go into it loads but it's just that it has a really good role to play in your hormones which then have an impact in your mental health uh-huh. a lot of people don't really go those two are connected they just go I've got mental health issues and I've got hormonal problems, but actually the two are combined. And if you did strength training, you'd hit them both. Okay, so this is fascinating. You said this was going to be the boring bit and it was bullshit. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't I could talk about it for hours. I can't do it in 20 minutes. <laughs> I fucking love that strong hair puts an emphasis on the female body. When I was looking for somewhere to learn how to weightlift to, to strength train properly with bigger weights I was so delighted to find an all women gym because that emphasis on the female body is so important because you've just mentioned hormones and the cycle and for women who have periods being in tune with or even just aware of your menstrual cycle is so key not only to Mm. better mental health and all sorts of other stuff but to better training and there's a brilliant board in the strong hair changing rooms which sort of says what exercises you should be doing during what days of your cycle i wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that I made that board with my bare hands. (laughs) So gorgeous. There's obviously the myth of you're not meant to train when you're on your period. 
like I will say this now for whoever's listening, like it is subjective because mm-hmm. everybody has a very different, they're very different start to the period. And again, as I said, if you've got endometriosis, especially, then that inflammation when you come on your period is going to inhibit you unless you take the measures to reduce that before. But if we're talking about kind of, a reg- I say a regular cycle, period or not, because some people don't have periods for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. but they still have a regular cycle. That first week, technically, you are most similar to our male counterparts, which means everything's just kind of like, I want to say neutral, which means technically as a woman, you are, I want to say less emotional, but you are a little bit more focused a bit more everything's a bit sharper Mm -hmm. and you can get things done and you're kind of in like a no bullshit zone you're quite direct I would say Mm -hmm. and you can sometimes be a little bit more aggressive in that week you kind of like you kind of no shit's given sort of thing you're just like right get it done and there's a really big opportunity there for people to capitalize on that but because they don't take the measures before the week of their period or before the first day of their cycle because that week is kind of like to prepare you to make sure that you can get through your period week so Mm -hmm. people miss that so week one I would say like you can go heavy you can go heavier than you think but you just need to take the measures in which you are losing blood so iron supplementation and making sure that you're still eating everything that you need to eat week two or I'd say like days eight to 13 is your mid follicular phase. And that's basically where estrogen's coming up, which if you've read the book, Period Power. Yeah, we had Maisie on the podcast. She's amazing. Oh yeah. my God. So that was, uh, that's book for me. So yeah, that's like estrogen comes in, which is like your Beyonce hormone mixed <laughs> with obviously a bit of like Serena and Venus. So it's like the athleticness of testosterone, but with the sex of Beyonce oh. is like creates this, incredible you become like an ultimate powerhouse where you can get big big lifts in that week and you probably get a pb in that week and you'll be like oh wow i can do this week but i couldn't i can't like the following week it'll be like "Uh -uh." then you've got ovulation 14 to 18 which is just like seize every moment then after that you go into like your your luteal phase which is where estrogen's kind of gone because the body's like oh my egg's not been fertilized so you know i need to basically recoup my energy and prepare for what's to come so that's the week you can still strength train but it's just changing what it is i find my form goes my balance goes a little bit my form goes a little bit my brain does in all fairness listeners struggle a little bit with what my body is supposed to do anyway but i just find that even if i've had it the week before that week just running up to my period my brain can't quite work out where to put my body yeah that's completely normal in terms of what is happening in the body and where it kind of comes back again to supplementation and understanding like you know maybe it's kind of the week where you have to go you have to go internal Mm -hmm. rather than and I even say it's like socializing or like big meetings at work if you have that like that's the two weeks leading up to the period is where you want to kind of recoup and regather training wise you can still go in but you just need to change the way you're training so you might do higher reps or more endurance as opposed to like big and heavy but you can still challenge yourself in the same way but then cognitive thinking wise you would need to make sure that you're still fueling yourself and you're still getting the right amount of sleep and supplementing like it's there's so many pillars to being a woman oh yeah (laughs) but once you once you have it once you have it it's kind of like wow like this changes everything and I'm very conscious to minimize my social calendar in weeks three and four in order for me to maintain my training at a relatively decent intensity because that for me is the biggest 
it is the biggest impact. And obviously social for me kind of leads to me more drinking. But then there's a knock-on effect. Whereas I'm like, if I minimise that, then other things can still be at a good intensity. I've got to say, do you know what? When I first started reading about this, like a good six or seven years ago now, because mm. of social conditioning being a fucker, I was like, oh, it's all a bit woo-woo, isn't it? But putting it into place and doing more reading around it, it has been, and this is like, I'm not, I'm not just overemphasizing. It's been transformative. It's been yeah. really transformative into how I feel, how I understand how I feel, how I plan things in my diary. So if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, what, that face, what, we've got to listen to what the moon tells me. It does sound like yeah. woo-woo, but it's really good. It's really important. It's very good. There's a really good book as well for anyone's listening called In the Flow that has changed, completely changed the way that I look at the cyclical cycle. The cyclical cycle. I mean, yep. <laughs> I <don't think> I <laughs> let's go with it. It's, go with that's it. the same thing. You know what I mean. <laughs> So I have thought about trying weightlifting a few times previously, but I've been put off, not just because of the testosterone heavy nature of most gym spaces, which are very male dominated in public gyms, particularly the heavyweights area, but because I was worried about becoming bulky. And Mm -hmm. so when I applied for Warrior, which is the program I'm, I'm on at Stronger, I wrote that it was the first time I'd wanted to do an activity simply to get stronger rather than to get smaller. And I'm going to be totally honest with you, because as I mentioned earlier, social conditioning is a pernicious fucker. There is still a tiny voice in my head that makes that a little bit of a lie. I can't help it. (laughs) But the idea that strength training will automatically make a woman bulky is nonsense, isn't it? Yes, it literally can't happen. (laughs) Like, it just can't happen. You know, women can get bulky, however... It would require the most enormous amount of food every single day, like three to 5,000 calories of food in the right macronutrient split and double training to a 75% to 90%. It would take everything. Mm-hmm. And still then, still then, genetics come into it. And also testosterone as well. That's a massive factor. Like we don't actually have enough testosterone mm-hmm. in our bodies to even mimic those results. And women that are bigger and bulkier there's a lot of them that are on extra growth hormones or testosterone it is literally like I said to I've said to so many people I used to do bodybuilding back when I started for the first like three or four years and I was training every single day or six days a week my sessions were about an hour and 15 to an hour and a half and I was eating about 2,000 calories a day and I just got leaner and leaner like and that's naturally the way it will go unless you're going to eat the volume of food and pair it with the absolute precise nature of training that's the only only way and over like years like 10 15 years it would take to even get that and even then that's probably not even the case so yeah it's not it's like eating like going to uni on day one and being like oh i've got a doctorate Oh. Or like going to or going to school even like starting like being three years old and like going oh right I've got you know what I mean got like, all I've, GCSEs. I've finished, yeah <laughs> yeah I've finished life now like it's it's literally it's like or eating one thing or not eating one thing it's like instantaneous instantaneous results like it's just it it won't happen for women unless you put everything into it and you took artificial enhancers in order to help you get there. I do think as well, and you're brilliant on this and social and just in the stronger space. There is also something that women have been taught that looking strong isn't for us as well and there's a real difference between that fear of being bulky in inverted commas 
Again, this is all arbitrary beauty standard bullshit. But looking strong and what that means. And I think many more women now are like, yeah, fuck it. I want to look strong. I want to be able to see my muscles. And I want those muscles to be able to do stuff, to be effective. Yeah. And I think what you said there was because I was going to be like, but what you said at the end is is the pinnacle. Again, if I use myself as an example, five years ago, I was ripped. Like in terms of fitness standard, whatever you want to call it, or what's pleasing to the eye, I was in the most aesthetically pleasing physique ever. Was I as strong as I am now? No. Like, so people can look, they can look strong, Mm. but actually what they can deliver is very, very, it's it's all kind of all style, no substance. um, Because part of that uh, lean look, or if you're being scientific, like hypertrophy training, is basically like inflating. You do higher reps to kind of condition and like fluff out the muscle, but then the foundations within it, like it's not actually got any cement in it. It's kind of like inflated and then it's just kind of looks great, but you can't actually do that much with it. Right. I find it really funny because people be like, yeah, I can like lift it. Like they look really good, but they can only lift X amount. And I'm like, okay, so I can lift triple that and one of the biggest things for us is saying like mass moves mass at the end of the day if you weigh more you can move more mm. so it's really really key to make the difference between looking strong and actually being strong yeah or at least being being in strong in ratio to your stature your body size your like things like that I think that goes really hand in hand with being in the correct mental space as well. So I have definitely started looking at my body differently since doing stronger. And while that little voice is, you know, I'm 45, that little voice is probably going to be in the back of my head forever as hard as I try. And despite what I do for a living, which is preaching that we shouldn't listen to the fucking patriarchy, <laughs> but that little voice is pernicious. But I have started to like, oh, yeah, that, that looks stronger. I can feel it. I can lift heavier than when I started and it's amazing and I was laughing today because on your profile on the Strongho website your tagline tagline I think it's a tagline is quote your pain is your power and having been in a few of your classes I actually think my pain is your power but (laughs) mental wellness by a confidence is such a huge aspect of Strongher, isn't it yeah yeah even like with the coaches that we choose and are I don't choose them because necessarily like they're the best technically ever 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 it's because they have a what's the word like a something's happened there's something's happened to them or they have something mentally where they're like this is like my like a seed mm-hmm. and basically the reason why they're doing it is because they're like I want to help people navigate something that I felt and I feel and I want to help them get out of it and want them to improve their mental strength which will then improve their physical because wherever your mind goes your body will follow that's at the end of it and so for us being able to navigate fitness in that but in the mental realm like being able to hold it for longer isn't your body going well I can't do it it's your mind going Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you yeah, can. Yeah. You've, you've you've done something like this before, maybe not in fitness, but maybe in, in again in a relationship or you endured a really long stint in a job that you didn't like. Or maybe you held on to your tongue because you didn't want to be outspoken. If you can push through something in the fitness space, you then translate it to another space. And then you're like, well, when, when did that happen? Like, because your mental strength has got significantly stronger uh-huh. in the process. So it is a massive thing and we're really or say we I'm really hot on like choosing our coaches and even my cheesy quote line because that's literally (laughs) how I think I'm like every single bad thing that's ever happened to me you could be I could be a victim I could be like oh this is what's happened to me or I could be like this happened to me it wasn't great 
but I'm going to utilize it to make myself a better version and also help other people that might have been in the same in a similar position to not let it consume them but literally stand on it and use it totally I've got to say that the women only atmosphere and that kind of oh god I'm gonna say it sisterhood or I feel a little bit queasy (laughs) it came out it came out and I mean it all (laughs) touchy-feely it really is an incredible community and much more encouraging than I could even have imagined there's like there's no judgment it's all just very positive but whilst Mm. also telling me to stop rounding my fucking shoulders and arching my back and I I appreciate that (laughs) that's what we're here for (laughs) (laughs) so Tig you just expanded next door and you're not someone to sit still neither Sam what's next you say that but right now we're like let's just sit down for a minute like <laughs> it's been two years of like non-stop I mean for now honestly we are figuring out the the I want to say the boring infrastructure of having a gym only space and a class space because that brings its own barriers obstacles hurdles mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it we've both worked in multiple different spaces it's making sure that we have the team equipped to be able to handle both spaces at the same time so that for us for right now is definitely where we're going to just sit for like the next four months I'd definitely say and then we are going for like sites two three and four that will be in a round of investment we do next year which I'm like oh I don't want to right now (laughs) the biggest thing for us was like get the blueprint of everything like get the blueprint of what we can duplicate which is having a class space, having a gym space. There's still other things that we'd like to add into this space, but it's just, we can't. So having site two, we'll have like a little bit more. But then after that, yeah, it's opening more spaces across the country, eventually franchising, but that will be like in five years. And that, listeners, is the joy of Tig. She initially started that answer with, we just want to sit still. And now she's opening stronger spaces across the country. Country! (laughs) Where can people follow you on the socials to find out more, please? Oh, everywhere. At Stronger Women on Instagram and on TikTok and on Facebook. And then our website is www.stronghur.co.uk. Yeah, and I'm sure if you're listening and you're thinking, this is all well and good, Mickey. Tig sounds ace, Stronghur sounds ace, but I don't live in fucking London, do I? There is a great <laughs> Stronghur online offering and you can find out more about that by visiting the website, stronghur.co.uk. Yay! Tig, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your enthusiasm, your meanness. Uh, I appreciate you. <laughs> I wasn't mean on this today, was I? No, you were lovely. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, this is, this is horrific. Welcome to Rachel's Audacious. (laughs) Mickey, why am I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> why am i choking on eggs as we speak <laughs> wow what an opener thanks for listening everyone I, I don't think anything i've got to say can beat that just watching hannah i think she's destroyed herself i think that's it i could get into the crucifixion pose now <laughs> this week we watched 1967 prison drama classic cool hand luke First things first, you can totally eat 50 hard-boiled eggs and you can do it in less than an hour. In fact, even though Hannah is still struggling to swallow, (laughs) the world record for egg eating is held by competitive eater Joey Chestnut, who scoffed 141 hard-boiled eggs in eight minutes. 
Oh, fuck off. No. That's logistically like... Just to chew it would take, like, longer than that. I'm not sure there was much chewing involved. I don't know that they chew, yeah. No. Oh. When do you think he next went to the toilet? Like, 18 months late? <laughs> I said to my mum as we were watching this film, I bet he didn't shit for, like, you know... It, it, fucking hell. 50 eggs would stay in your, in your lower intestine for 36 hours. That is a lot of horrific farting. How do you even... Oh, it's not nice. I don't like it. <laughs> so you can eat 50 eggs. Should you, though? You do you. I'm not your real mum, but you probably want to hand out gas masks to your dearest and vitally nearest. Hannah, have we got you back? Yes, I'm back, thank you. I only ate one. <laughs> been... well, I did just shove it in, though. Did you make one. that for the purposes of this, Hannah? What, do you think I sit around with a cup all day on I don't know, day maybe. In case? <laughs> oh, this is the weirdest start to a rated or dated ever, and I'm totally here for it. So I was going to ask whether either of you had any impressive eating feats to share, but I think Hannah has already answered that question very viscerally in front of our faces. Jen, impressive tricks with food? No, I mean, I would say like I can probably put away more food than the average person of my size and stature. Not that my size and stature is small particularly, but uh, I, I, I can eat a lot of food. My sister once entered a crisp eating contest when she was a little girl. And uh, my mum said that Sign they were like, <laughs> they were like building everyone up. Yeah. They were like, right, ready to go. And then all these children just descended on the crisps. And my sister just opened one packet and then one <laughs> Just had a lovely she was just time. just for a free bag of crisps. Yeah, totally. Well done, your sister. That seems like a, a great way to approach it. Do you remember where Hannah and I had the great idea that Daisy Haggard and I would have a crisp off live on stage, but the only crisps we thought to buy right near the end. Walker's salt and vinegar our mouths were bleeding it was horrific it was pretty bad just to qualify the point i've already made about being a good eater my friend nicola used to live in wimbledon and there was a place there called jimmy spices i believe it's a chain because there's also one in bath but I, i don't know where else they exist and basically it's like an all you can eat buffet you pay a certain amount of money and then there's like different world food stations Mm -hmm. And then there's like a, a pudding area as well for when you're station. done. And she, pudding. A pudding station, yeah. Mm. And she did tell me that she had put me on her hypothetical Jimmy Spice's dream team <laughs> because of the amount of food I can eat. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's observed. It's not just a humble brag. This has been observed by other people. I can eat a lot. It's probably knocked you off a lot of people's dream dinner party guest list, though, Jen, because I'd be like, Possibly. that catering is going to be expensive possibly but it's a good way to deal with leftovers so you know <laughs> so egg eating became an iconic scene for the already iconic paul newman our eponymous anti-hero luke in director Stuart rosenberg's take on real life convict don pierce's 1965 novel now i call luke an anti-hero not because he's a bad guy he's not but he sure isn't fussed about being a hero to his fellow prisoners working on the chain gang Yep, that setup means you'll have worked out that I have chosen yet another Wang Fest. Sorry! <laughs> this is a film that deals with rough and unhappy men, so I'll get it out of the way here. There are just two female characters in Cool Hand Luke Luke Smart, our letter, played by the glorious Joan Van Fleet, and a young woman who uses her tits to wash a car. Well done, Joy Harmon. That is one clean motor and a whole lot of hot and bothered men. Fans of sweaty hillbilly character actors get a real treat, though, with <laughs> Dennis Hopper, J.D. Cannon, Anthony Zerber, Harry Dean Stanton. Hello, Harry Dean Stanton. It's been a while. And Morgan Woodward in the same film. I'm guessing Hannah's screen was awash with familiar faces, yeah? Mm. 
Yeah. George Kennedy. God, I love him. Included, of course, George <laughs> Kennedy, who, when I was a kid, was most recognisable from the Naked Gun films, but who made many appearances in Dunleavy Does Disaster yeah. and indeed in a whole lot of Westerns. Here, he's Luke's bully turned pal turned St. Peter. We'll get to that. Clarence Dragline Slidle, Sliddle, Slidell. Mm. John the Baptist, maybe? Judas. I don't know. We can discuss this. We can get to that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> And he picked up a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his efforts. He also bagged a Laurel Award. Newman was up for an Oscar, a Laurel and Golden Globe, but didn't win anything. Say what? As well as garnering various award nods, Cool Hand Luke did very well at the box office and with reviewers, although they were fairly united in disliking Luke's final monologue to God. Its depiction of prison life at the time has also been criticised, with Life magazine positing that the landscapes turned it into, quote, a rest camp in which the men are getting plenty of sleep, food and healthy outdoor exercise. And adding that, despite the presence of the guards, it showed that there were, quote, worse ways to pay one's debt with society. Our old mucker Roger Ebert bloody loved it, giving most of the credit to Newman, saying the physical presence of Paul Newman is the reason this movie works. The smile, the innocent blue eyes, the lack of strutting. Hannah, I know you've seen it before. Do you remember Uh, the first time? Yeah, I was probably, I'd say, I don't know, mid-twenties or something. I think it must have been on the telly. I can't remember. It wouldn't have been in a video shop, so I think it was probably on the telly. Yeah. And yeah, I liked it. Jen, what about you? Have you seen it before? No, it won't surprise you to learn I've never seen this film before. (laughs) Had you, Mick? I had seen it before, more than once, but I was racking my brain and it was interesting to me that I couldn't remember when I'd first seen it because my brain, like yours, is pretty good at remembering stuff like this. And also, the egg scene was the bit that obviously had stood out Mm. to me, but it meant I was quite surprised by how much of it, including lines... I remembered as I was watching it. So it had gone in. I just don't know when. Well, talking of lines, I have a question for you. Did you stop immediately after watching this and then start listening to Guns N' Roses? (laughs) No, but they do make a mention of it in Civil War, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. What we have here is a failure to communicate. That's probably the famous line from it, isn't it? Yeah. And interestingly, with the screenwriters were a little bit worried that people would think it was too savvy for a warden, like that guy wouldn't be intelligent enough to deliver the little speech that comes after that, the captain. Um, But also people who worked in correctional facilities were sent to specialist schools, so that's how they argued that it would make sense within the film. Oh, like he'd heard it and he thought it made that other guy sound clever, so he'd repeat it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, the plot. Lucas Luke Jackson is out on the solitary piss when he gets nailed by the cops for destroying parking meters, resulting in a two-year sentence on a prison farm. He learns the very many rules, most of them pointless, of his new captivity from both his captors, including the sadistic warden known as the captain, played by Strouther Martin, and his fellow inmates, but he isn't really up for playing by them. This sets him apart from his fellow inmates who first look upon him with suspicion but grow to respect his tenacity, humour and seemingly unbreakable spirit which make him a natural leader whether he wants to be a leader or not. However, once he snuffed all those eggs, respect turns into something a bit like worship. His fellow prisoners become disciples of the gospel according to Luke with Dragline his most fervent apostle. And when Luke's mum dies, the captain, anticipating Luke will go rabbit and do a runner, locks him in the box, a small wooden booth in the prison yard with limited air and very little room to move. 
Obviously, once he's released from the box, Luke becomes determined to escape. Escape 1 doesn't last very long and results in leg irons for Luke. Escape 2 lasts long enough for Luke to mail a photo of himself with two beautiful women to dragline. But he is soon recaptured, given two sets of irons and threatened with being killed on the spot should he attempt to scarper again. He's also forced to repeatedly dig a grave-sized hole in the prison camp yard. I'd forgotten how bleak and brutal Mm. this bit actually Mm. is. Fill it back in and he's brutally beaten and this goes on and on until he is finally broken tearfully promising never to run away again his fellow inmates are looking on and it makes their glory in him fade and one of them tears up that photograph of him and the beautiful women escape three surprises everyone potentially even luke who seizes the chance to steal a truck Dragline, giddy with the thrill of it, jumps in the truck too, but fast becomes a lost sheep and liability when Luke says they need to split up. Does Dragline lead the cop straight back to Luke? I'm I'm not sure, but there they all are, Dragline promising Luke he won't be hurt if he hands himself in. Luke, the loner against the system, defies the authorities one last time and is shot in the neck before being bundled into a car on a journey he has no chance of surviving. So... Is he actually Jesus? What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, well, I mean, he's not, is he? Because uh, there's no such thing as Jesus. Father Christmas is real, though, right? Don't, yeah. don't ruin that. <laughs> actually, there probably was someone called Jesus, but I don't think... Yeah, anyway, yeah, I mean, there's loads of imagery, isn't it? I, although we do get to see Ralph Wait, Is that his name? Paul Walton. Oh, and also um, the priest from Carnival. Yeah. yeah, we do get to see him in, in the white shirt. Like, you mostly see Luke in the white sort of shirt and of, he performs a number of quote-unquote miracles. Mm. I mean, the difference between him eating 50 eggs and that guy is that guy's stomach must be stretched to fuck, whereas they were living on quite a, a small diet. But he is reluctant, isn't he? Although that said, traditionally, Jesus was reluctant as well. Yeah. Jen, did you notice the religious iconography, the symbolism? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say morally, obviously, he's not Jesus either. But there, there is so much Christian connotation at work here. Yeah. So Luke's prisoner number is 37 and he's called Luke. In the book of Luke 137, the quote is, For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And obviously, he keeps trying the impossible to escape. He eats 50 eggs. There are 50 prisoners. Is he absorbing their sins? via eggs it's the traditional way to absorb a sin i'm sure we can all agree whose sin were you absorbing at the top there hannah was it your own oh, one of my own that's yeah. why i nearly choked on <laughs> <laughs> and obviously post eating all those eggs he just flops into crucifixion pose on the bench and there's that final monologue in which luke speaks directly to god evoking the conversation between god and jesus at the garden of gethsemane depicted in the gospel of luke and then we've got Dragline. So I think he's Judas slash Peter. But you mentioned John the Baptist. Yeah, because he's the guy that they all circulate around before. Mm. So he's the guy that clears the path for him. It's, yeah. it's he that says Luke is coming, as it were. Yeah. Brings him into the fold. Do you think he betrays Luke? Or do you think he's just really easy to capture? Because it's not made particularly clear. I just think he's daft, isn't he? <laughs> he needs the leadership. He's not a natural leader. No. Or he is a leader in in a small enclosed space. Mm. Well, when he follows the, the rules. the skills to be a leader involve being, you know, relatively intimidating and that sort of thing. Um, whereas the skill, those skills aren't that great in the wider world. Mm. 
So you'd think at this point I'd be heading over to christiananswers.net and indeed indeed I did. And somewhat oddly, Frederick Jones's review also totally misses the Jesus stuff. You and christiananswers.net, Jen. (laughs) I feel like I've got a good excuse in that I have not read the Bible. I did not go to a school where reading the Bible was a thing that we did. I feel that christiananswers.net... (laughs) <laughs> really should know better. I agree with you, Jen. I think that's a fair enough reason for you not spotting it. Because it, I think for the two Catholic or raised Catholic girls here, it's so striking. It's, it's a bit yeah. much, to be honest mm. with you. It's quite OTT. The other thing that I've seen spoken about, Cool Han Luke, and uh, sorry, Jen, this is probably more for Hannah, given that she's the expert here, is it's speaking to the Vietnam War and what was going on there. Did you see that anti-establishment nature? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was 1967. So it is anti-establishment slash libertarian. He's cutting the heads off parking meters Mm. because, you know, I should be able to park where I like. You know, I don't need to explain libertarianism to everybody. I'm sure they get it. That is the context of the film being made. But actually, as such, he does abide by the rules. When he gets into prison, a lot of the rules he abides by. Yeah. I mean, some of them he doesn't, but a lot of them he does. He always says... Yes, sir. Yes, boss. That sort of thing. Mm. He does follow a lot of the rules and he does sort of try to fit in. So it isn't entirely anti-establishment. He isn't a complete... Well, because he's a World War Two vet as well, isn't he? So, mm. But he's a disillusioned he? and he's a lone wolf, isn't he? Mm. And I think lone wolfism is more common in ex-servicemen because, you know, they don't talk about their problems or what they've seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you think the point of it is that, like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't? You have read the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) No, I meant like in the context of, I don't know a lot about the Vietnam War. It's not an area I've studied particularly, but obviously, you know, you you go or you dodge the draft. You're fucked either way, basically, right? Yeah. If you do what the man expects of you and if you don't do what the man expects of you, it doesn't, like, it makes no odds. You're fucked whatever you do. Yeah, and maybe also that there's the man wherever you go. You can be as Mm. anti-establishment as you like, but the man's still going to be there and will probably be more powerful and will beat you down. Mm. I wondered what you both thought it said about masculinity, if anything. Ooh, nothing nice. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Nothing nice. That uh, The scene you referred to earlier with the woman, Lucille, was horrible to watch like really uncomfortable went on way too long it felt like i was watching it for a long time i was just like fucking hell this is never ending do you know something interesting i spotted from reading a lot of male reviewers of cool hand luke is they all talk about how cruel she is being like this Mm. is a lesson in cruelty it's interesting isn't it because (laughs) jen's face was very good there is that interesting within the plot she has agency. Mm. She has made that decision to go outside and wind him up, you know. And I'm sure her life is pretty dull and boring, almost as boring as theirs is. So in a way, you know, everybody's getting something out of that, mm. as it were. But does she have agency, you know, as a character written by a man, you know, or is it a fake agency, if you know what I mean? Is it slightly suggesting that that men are entirely playthings for women is that message good no so i am a bit i am a bit torn in that scene 
that scene actually is like pretty influential, obviously, and it has been used over and over and over again in other stuff. Mm, I've seen it. In fact, I seem to recall Liv Tyler Liv doing Tyler. it in yes, something. That was yeah, that's what I was thinking of, but I can't think of the film that she's can't in. Can't think what the film is, and I've also seen it in a in a spoof, in a sort of Naked Gun style way. I don't know if it was Naked Gun or it was, but in one of those type things. One night at McCool's, um, probably best forgotten, I imagine. <laughs> I went to review it when I was working for a lads mag. Interesting. I wonder what I said yeah. about it. Thankfully, everything's been burned. Did you like it? No, I don't think I did. I, I don't. Th- I wouldn't say I enjoyed watching it. Like, I'm sure it's a good film. I'm sure that there's lots of you know, but I didn't particularly enjoy watching it. I just found it quite. Well, it's just not very nice, is it? I think it's very funny. A lot of it is very funny amid the bleakness. And I think I'd remembered its humour and so was sort of shocked anew by the brutality of lots of it and the bleakness of it and mm-hmm. the like futility of what Luke is doing. Yeah. I think it's excellent. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's interesting because I think it's really, really good. You know, I watched it again and I still think it's really, really good. I don't know on what occasion I would ever think... Oh, I'll watch Cool Land Luke mm. again unless it's a Sunday afternoon and it's raining and I turn on the TV and it's on. Yes. Or something. I yeah. can't imagine me seeking it out again. It's quite a hard watch, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But I think it's really, like, it is really scenic. It's got some lovely shots in it. And in particular, the shot at the end with the man with no eyes and them escaping caught in his mirrored sunglasses. That is like an absolute, like, sort of Terence Malick-esque mm. shot. That's really good. I mean, this is before Terence Malick, though, so it's not, it, uh, it would be, it should technically say it would be the other way around. And he's interesting, sort of, as a character, because it made me think, what is the history of mirrored sunglasses? Because I'm a horrible, like, sort of cruel abuser of my position of power from the South. Mirrored sunglasses is the go-to for that to portray that as a character and it made me wonder whether that comes from Cool Hand Luke or whether it predates Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, that's it. Because you get it all the time. Because Robin Williams used to say as a joke, didn't he, this guy was so proud he had the mirrors on the inside <laughs> of his sunglasses. <laughs> so yeah, there is, that. I, th- I think that's interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think it's good. I think it's interesting. It's got good performances in it. I really like George Kennedy. Um, obviously, you know, Paul Newman is great in this. His smile, man. The bit right at the beginning before the credits when he has been smashing the tops, the heads off the parking meters mm. and he's hammered and he just sits down and he's giggling and they freeze frame it on it. That smile is just, oh, it, it went straight to my heart, actually. It's just, I mean, he's clearly a very handsome man, but that's just a really warm, genuine giggle that he's doing there. It's a beautiful man, isn't he? Okay, so let's boil it down. Boil, boil the egg it down to rated or dated. I didn't really enjoy it, but I don't think that means it's dated. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to sit on the fence as often I do. I'm just, <laughs> I'm aware that you know it's, I'm not necessarily the target audience, so I don't want to say it's dated. I just didn't enjoy it very much, so I'll give it a rated. Okay, Hannah. Well, I'll give it a much more forceful rated than that. <laughs> I'm also going to give it a rated. So, well done, Cool Hand Luke. And also, well done, Hannah Dunleavy. Incredible egg-eating scenes Welcome. at the beginning. None of us were expecting that, particularly Hannah. Nobody's going to be listening this far because they all have been utterly repulsed by me talking with my mouth full. <laughs> Who's next and what are we watching? It is me. 
And we are going to watch, as I said the other day, we're going to watch 1997's Welcome to Sarajevo. And Jen, I'm going to hand you a get out of jail free card because this film is really bloody. And if you don't want to watch it, you don't need to. Thanks. (laughs) But what shall I do? No, you have to watch it. Otherwise, I'm just talking by myself for 20 minutes. (laughs) issue for all women.